song uh, that I'm going to do this morning is The Warrior Lamb. How many of you here were last night and you remember that song? Okay. Any of you uh, who heard it want to come up and lead it for me? Oh. <laughs> uh, uh, the Warrior Lamb, uh, I, uh, as I said last night, it's my uh, ticked-off song. Uh, I was in my se- when I was a seminary professor. I received a uh, thing in the mail. It was a book. It was actually the Shepherd of Hermas, which is an early church father's uh, writing from the second century. And the, uh, this cult group wanted me to stick it in the Bible and remove the book of Revelation because it was too negative. And uh, so and I... I got mad, so I wrote this song. And it's an exposition of Revelation 19, the second coming passage, 11 through 16, where Jesus comes on the white horse and then he, he's the king of kings and lord of lords. And, uh, and I call the song, The Warrior Lamb. So when he comes back, he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is the, the Jesus with the Lamb on his shoulders. But he's also a warrior who's coming back to judge. And we have to, as Christians, we have to be honest about both sides of that and not just one side. We are two coming Christians, first coming and second coming, and we need to be faithful to both sides. So this is not me singing to you. This is all of you singing with me. So about the second or third line, now those of you here last night, first line, um, about the second, third line, everybody ought to be, uh, I think it's a, a tune that you can get. I can't write complicated things, so... Uh, I think you can uh, figure it out as we go. But the warrior lamb. A lamb is so helpless, it can't find its way. Slaughtered for the sacrifice, with its life it has to pay. Jesus came the first time to be a victim and a lamb. So they all turned against him with their own hands. But when he comes again, he'll be a warrior in the clouds. He'll be riding on a white horse with a sword in his mouth. The warrior king and judge will be the awesome Lord of Lords and the warrior lamb from the throne of God will rule forevermore. People see Jesus as a sweet little lamb whose love is the example for each and every man. That's all of him they want They don't know what's in store One day they'll be surprised When they hear the lion roar But when he comes again He'll be a warrior in the clouds He'll be riding on a white horse with a sword in his mouth. The warrior king and judge will be the awesome Lord of Lords. And the warrior lamb from the throne of God will rule forevermore. 
But when he comes again, he'll be a warrior in the clouds. He'll be riding on a white horse with a sword in his mouth. The warrior king and judge will be the awesome Lord of Lords. And the warrior lamb from the throne of God will rule forevermore. And the warrior lamb from the throne of God will rule forevermore. And all of God's people said, Amen. And as we said last night, we all want God to hit the fast forward button and get us there. Well, we've got a lot to cover this morning. We've got three times together, and I don't know, some of you will uh, make it through one, some through two, and maybe some through all three. I don't know. Uh, I'm glad the church is providing the opportunity to uh, uh, grab those things other ways uh, and uh, well, thank the pastor and the congregation for inviting me to come uh, and be part uh, of this uh, conference with you. And I hope it'll be profitable uh, for you. Uh, but I want to invite your attention to Romans 9. We're talking this morning about God's heart for Israel. You know, remember the conference theme, understanding God's heart. The last night uh, we talked, you know, such a bad place, this world has so many bad things happening in it, and, uh, and we long for, for him to come, and we, we think, why does God delay? And the Bible addresses that question, and we address that from Second Peter chapter 3. Uh, this morning we're going to deal with God's heart for Israel, then God's heart for the church, in the second session and then the third session, God's heart, no more tears. And we'll do my second song that I taught you last night during that service. Uh, and and uh, a lot of what I present are expositions of the Bible. Even my songs are expositions of the Bible. Uh, and so we want you to get into the Bible because, um, you know, I don't appreciate preachers who make it as boring as possible. And you don't either. But on the other hand, I don't appreciate preachers who just preach their own ideas. That's right. So, uh, uh, you know, Cross Life Bible Church? Right. It's not Newspaper Church. It's not CNN Church. It's not even Fox News Church. It's Bible Church. See, we're all about the Bible. Because that's God's love letter to us. And we are to love the whole counsel of God. And that includes prophecy. It's, uh, we're not prophecy nuts as if that's the only thing in the Bible. It's not. It's an awful lot in the Bible uh, else that we have to pay attention to. But we need to take care to think about the 25% of the Bible that is prophecy. So we're going to start off with God's heart for Israel. And let me define Israel for you. People have a trouble with that. You know that? They're Bible scholars that they define Israel as C-H-U-R-C-H. Yes. Church. Taint so. 
Israel, everywhere it occurs in the Bible. In fact, I'm next week, uh, I'm gonna be, uh, first week in March, I'm gonna be in Houston, Texas at a conference and I'm speaking on what the Bible, what the meaning of Israel is in the Bible. And it was a fascinating study. I went through every occurrence, there's 2,000 something of them in the Bible. I went through most of them. I skimmed a lot of the Old Testament ones that were over and over clearly the nation of Israel. And then I went through 73 occurrences in the New Testament. Every one of them, I studied them hard. Nowhere in the Bible does Israel mean church. In fact, uh, I'm accused of being an, uh, an extremist. There's one theologian called me, not by name, but my brand of theology, which means he was calling you that too. Um, you're extremists. I guess you're theological terrorists. And he, he defined that by this. You take Israel to mean Israel. <laughs> he actually says that in a book. Israel means Israel. I'm guilty. God didn't stutter when he talked. Israel means Israel, so in the, the various uses of it, it always refers in some way to what we today call Jewish people. Hebrews, Israelites, sometimes it was used of the northern tribes, you know, after they had their civil war and they split into the Yankees and the southerners. And uh, sometimes it's the whole nation, uh, but it's, and sometimes it's the person, Jacob, who had his name changed to Israel by God. It's the Hebrews, the Israelites, the Jewish people. And it's them everywhere in the world, not just in the state of Israel. And so we need to be sure that we understand these things. Okay, it's not advancing. Oh, it is advancing. It's just not advancing on my computer, which, you know, that means this. So I don't look at it. Okay. We're going to start off, uh, this is my roadmap, prayer, plan, problems, and prospect for Israel as we look at God's heart for uh, the Jewish people. I put the flag of Israel up there so you see it. We're going to start with prayer. And so in verse number one of chapter nine of Romans, let me read this. I tell the truth in Christ, and by the way, pay attention to how intense this is. Sometimes we read things and we're, we don't really get how intense the author is being when he says this. I tell the truth in Christ, I'm not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart for I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen according to the flesh who are Israelites. Notice the clear conscience in verse one. As I tell the truth in Christ, I'm not lying. It's almost like he is, you know, swearing on a stack of Bibles. He's intense here. I'm telling you the truth. I'm not lying. I have a clear conscience about this. Uh, it's bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit. So what I'm about to say is intense. And then second, notice the heavy heart in verse two, that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. 
So there's a sorrow, there's a grief, there's a hurt in his heart, there's an ache there. And the one that really punches up the intensity is the third one, the sacrificial soul. Look at verse 3. For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen according to the flesh. Before I explicate that, you know, I've called this a prayer. Now, it's, he's wishing, and wishing is not praying. Christians do a lot of wishing for stuff. I wish for a new job, but you don't pray for it. You don't ask God for it, and you don't go out and look for it. Uh, you need to pray, not just wish. But if you go over to chapter 10, look at verse 1. Chapter 10, brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. He's praying for Jewish people to come to the Lord. That's the same thing he's, he's sharing here. But there's a twist here in chapter 9. In verse 3, for I wish that I myself, and there's one reason I think he wishes it instead of prays it, is that he knows it can never be answered. I wish that I myself were accursed from Christ. Meditate on that for a second. What it means is I, I wish that my Jewish family could come to Christ if, if they would, if I could just go to hell so they could do that. Is there anybody here who would be willing to go to hell for eternity? For a loved one? That's hard. That's intense. Is he being honest? Yes. Under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, I think he's being honest here in, his, in the depths of his heart. But he also knows, as the, an apostle, that he can never do that. Why? Because someone has already done it. Jesus went to the cross and suffered the wrath of God upon sin. So we don't have to suffer that wrath. And so, you see right off the bat this prayer for Paul that launches this section of Romans. It's interesting, this section of Romans. Some uh, people, uh, commentators have said, uh, Romans 9, 10, 11, which is about Israel, seems so out of place in Romans. I mean, Romans starts early with uh, everybody's a sinner. The solution is justification by faith. And then once you get justified by faith, you're sanctified. You have a right view of, the, of uh, the law, the right view of sin. You have the right view of the Holy Spirit. And all of a sudden, then Israel. But it's not out of place. In fact, at the end of Romans 8, we have that beautiful passage. Nothing will separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Remember that? And that whole section starts in uh, verse 28, especially. God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to them who are called according to his purpose. And then that beautiful section, the plan of God, the Son of God, and the love of God, keeps us secure in him. We won't lose our salvation. And we look at that passage, we go, great. But then someone might object in the audience that Paul was writing to. Well, wait a minute. You cast off the Jews after making promises to them. How can I be sure, God, that you will keep your promise to me? 
And so Paul launches on Romans 9, 10, 11 to tell us that God, even though he has judged Israel, and he had and was about to really seriously judge them after Jesus. Paul's writing this just a few years before the temple's destroyed. He says, but God has not turned his back forever on Israel. That's the purpose of 9, 10, and 11. And he's answering the potential complaint. How can I trust God with the promises for me? You can because you can trust his promises for Israel. Now, now we move to the plan for Israel, beginning in verses 4 and 5. And there is a list here. Who are Israelites, he calls them. To whom pertain, and then there's the list. And the first one is adoption. What does that mean? In Deuteronomy 7, verse 6, If you are a holy people to the Lord your God, the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself. He's talking to, this is Moses. Deuteronomy is the book, is the book that Moses, kind of like Moses' final sermon, final preparation before they enter the promised land. And of course, they go in without Moses. So he's giving them this, and then he rehearses the Ten Commandments, he rehearses other things in the law, but he also reminds them, you are chosen. God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. Yet why do we call the Jewish people the chosen people? And by the way, they're still chosen. And some of them, because of the great persecution, said, I wish God would choose somebody else. And he's chosen the church, by the way. Where the church is chosen in a different way. Uh, but they are the ethnic chosen people. The Bible gives us that. Not preachers. The Bible gives us that. Above all the other peoples on the face of the earth. You'll say, God's playing favorites. Yes. He had to pick some family of people on the earth through which to bring the seed of the woman, the Messiah. And he just didn't choose the Irish or the Italians or the Arabs or the Spaniards or the Americans. He chose the Jewish family. That's who he chose. And it's interesting how so much history, especially in our generation, is affected by what happens to that family. And then um, we see in Amos 3.2, Amos is written about 800 uh, BC, and he says to Israel, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. Well, did God lose his memory with everybody else? Does God have partial Alzheimer's? No, that's not what it's talking about. The word known there, uh, the Hebrew word carries the idea of a knowing choice. You only have I known chosen of all the families of the earth, but then there's really quick, therefore I will punish you for all your iniquities. With great blessing comes great responsibilities. <clears throat> Do you know that God expects more from Christians than he does pagans? I mean, we, we, we are required to live to a higher standard. Same way was true of the Jewish people in the Old Testament. 
And so they are adopted. <clears throat> they are a special people. The second uh, word there in this list for his plan is the word glory in verse 4. And I have a picture there uh, of uh, clouds on a mountain. Uh, and the idea of Mount Sinai and Moses going up in the cloud. And God has appeared in so many ways using clouds or fire. The burning bush, the, the cloud on Mount Sinai, the pillar of fire in the wilderness, the cloud in the daytime, the pillar of fire at night, um, the Shekinah glory that filled the temple. So God has taken that, the, the glory, we sometimes call it the glory cloud. And so I think the word glory here probably refers to that. And then the covenants. There's the Facebook picture of Abraham. Uh, you have the Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant, and the new covenant. And there are other covenants in the Bible, but these are the three big ones relative to the nation of Israel. Abraham was called out from God to leave his country and come to the place of what today the world calls Palestine, which we call Israel. And this land is yours. And your descendants, it belongs to them. That's what God said. And also said, I'm going to bless the whole world through you. And of course, that comes through the Messiah, Jesus. Uh, and then you have the Davidic covenant, where God comes to David and says in that stream, you know, after Israel rejected God's idea not to have a king, God gave him Saul. That was a bad choice. And why did they choose Saul? He was taller than everybody else. And, they, you know, and they, they had seen Goliath. We need a tall guy to go fight Goliath. And of course, Saul wasn't going to do that. So what? David, who was probably a scrawny Jewish boy, certainly young, goes out and kills Goliath. And God had already anointed him, and God raised him to be the king of Israel. And then he promises to David, your descendants will always exist. The sons of David will never be wiped off the mat like Saul's. And your kingdom will endure. There's always going to be a legal right to the throne of David. And it's going to be a Davidic son who will sit on the throne one day to rule forever. And that's Jesus when he comes back. That was a promise to David. Then the new covenant, the spiritual blessing. The promise of the Holy Spirit in Jeremiah 31. God's going to uh, one day for Israel fulfill that. Hasn't happened yet for Israel. I tend to think there's a fulfillment of the new covenant application, not fulfillment, that's not the right word, but an application of it made to the church today. But we don't fulfill the promise to Israel. But that's coming for Israel when Jesus comes back. A spiritual presence of the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit will be poured out on all Jewish flesh. That's coming when Jesus comes. So the kingdom that comes will be earthly, but it will also be spiritual in the power of the Holy Spirit. So the, these covenants, they're central and significant for all, even for Christians. Very important, but they're given to the Jewish people. Notice he says, the Israelites to whom pertain these things. The covenants come through Israel. And then the law. Now, you know, I put up a picture of Charlton Heston. The Ten Commandments movie. I, I'm going to be so disappointed if Moses doesn't look like Charlton Heston when I get to heaven. <laughs> 
But God gave the law, that the Mosaic covenant. It's a conditional covenant. It's been made obsolete, Hebrews 8 tells us. So the law is not a regula regulation for us, although it's a wisdom for us to apply as, as helpful. Now, we don't keep the Sabbath like the, uh, they did in the Old Testament days. We're not required to keep it. It's okay if you want to honor it, that's fine. Uh, but we don't, uh, and, we, and Sunday is not the Sabbath. It's not the Christian Sabbath. Saturday is still the Sabbath. Uh, so that's the only one, though, the, uh, the Ten Commandments, that we don't really uh, see repeated in the New Testament. So there's a lot of things that keep going. Uh, but the law was given to them. A lot of details given about their nation, about priests, about sacrifices. Of course, and we don't do those. Why? Because Jesus has come and made the once-for-all sacrifice for us. And then service. Verse 4 mentions that. And what is that talking about? So it's a liturgical word. It's a word about uh, the, the way that things are set up for worship. And uh, here's a, a chart. Uh, you know, God is omnipresent, Psalm 139. He's everywhere. But then God localizes his presence. I call it God's localized presence. God shows up in special ways to demonstrate a local presence. And with the Jewish people, with the Israelites, the Hebrews, he does that in the tabernacle over in Exodus 25. And by the way, I was saved the day I was saved. The pastor preached a sermon on the tabernacle in the wilderness. That's what I got to say. Then you have the first temple with Solomon, Second Chronicles 3. Then you have the second temple, sometimes called Herod's temple or Zerubbabel's temple. Herod's temple it's called because Herod ex expanded it and built, built it up. Uh, John 2 mentions that. Then you have the tribulation temple. Uh, we know that there's a temple. It may happen before then if they build one. Uh, but there'll be, uh, certainly be a temple during the tribulation period because sacrifices are stopped halfway through uh, by the Antichrist. We, we see that. And then there's a, a fourth temple, Ezekiel's temple. Now the, the Jews may view their kingdom temple coming as a third temple. Uh, and generally they talk that way. But you have God's localized presence through history for Israel and many other things like the burning bush again, localized presence, the clouds, the pillar of fire, all these localized Things where God shows up. But in the liturgy, it's all these things in the service of worship, the tabernacle and the various temples. And God has that throughout history. And then it says the promises. The promises. That's a pretty broad term. Maybe it includes everything, but I think it probably includes primarily these two things. The future kingdom and the future land. <laughs> Now remember when Paul is writing this to the Romans, Israel is under the thumb of Rome. They're not an independent state. They're under an oppressor. And they're longing, they longed for Jesus to just, you know, when he came in on the Palm Sunday, and they hailed him as the king. You know, they, had, I mean, they saw him raise people from the dead. You know, if you can raise people from the dead, you can make them die. So if he could just come in here and make all the Roman soldiers die, and let's have our kingdom. So, uh, that's what they long for. Uh, and there's an ultimate kingdom that's coming, a messianic kingdom. And the future land, 
It belongs to them forever and ever and ever. So the promise of the land, although the Bible says they can get kicked out for a time, and they have been twice in history, kicked out for a time. So the promises. And then notice this, Amos 9.15. I love this verse. I will plant them, talking about Israel, in their land, and no longer shall they be pulled up from the land I have given them, says the Lord your God. Do you know what that means? It means I will plant them in their land, and no longer shall they be pulled up from the land I have given them. There's coming a day when they'll be in the land, and God will never let them leave it again. That was a promise 800 years before Jesus. There are people who believe that the church has replaced Israel. No, the church has not replaced Israel. Israel has a future, and God will not let that be undone or unraveled. It's a sure promise that God has given to them. And then uh, it says, after that, it says, of whom are the fathers? Who are the fathers? I have a picture there of Abraham and Isaac on the way to the sacrifice of Isaac that, as we know, didn't get pulled off because God provided the substitute ram in the thickets. Notice what this says. God did not set his love on you nor choose you, talking to the Jewish people or the Israelites, because you were more in number than any other people, for you were the least of all peoples. But because the Lord loves you and because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers. The promise to the fathers. Now, it goes on to say, from whom Christ came. The fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The family through which Jesus came. And it says, the text says there in verse 5, who is overall the eternally blessed God, teaches the deity of the Lord. But there's some problems for Israel. Not just the prayer and the plan, but there's some problems. First one is that not all Jews are saved. Look in verse 6. But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel, nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham. You know, there, are, there were some Jews in the first century when Jesus was doing his earthly ministry who believed that they were all right, that they were accepted, that they were going to go to heaven or wherever um, simply because they were Jews. That's why in Matthew 8, Jesus made the shocking statement to them Many are going to come from the east and the west, that is from the other nations, and dine in the kingdom with Abraham. But many of the sons of the kingdom, talking about the Jewish people, are not going to make it. See, being Jewish is not enough. And Paul says that here. Uh, they are not all Israel who are of Israel. He's not talking about Gentiles here. He's not talking about a spiritual Israel or a spiritual church. That's a, a church as the new Israel or anything like that. He's just simply saying not all Jewish people 
are saved. And the reason is given in the next chapter, in chapter 10. Go over there again. We started there a little bit in um, the first three verses. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved, for I bear them witness. They have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Now that tells us that sincerity is not enough. They have a zeal, but it's not according to truth. Verse 3, for they being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness have not submitted to the righteousness of God. So the Jews sought salvation by good deeds for the most part. Some believe, yeah, if I'm Jewish, I'm okay. My deeds are okay. If I just keep the law. Well, who keeps the law? Last night and we found out that everybody was a thief and a liar. Um, because we've all done that. We've all broken the law. And God just will ask, have you ever broken my law? So they, they're, they're trying to muster up their own righteousness to get accepted by God. And that never works because we can never be up to the standards of God. That's why Jesus came to die. And so we have, it's a beautiful swap, isn't it? He gets our sin, we get his righteousness. That is a deal. Uh, and the Jews had rejected that possibility, uh, even though the Bible says in Genesis 15, 6, that Abraham basically was saved by faith. And that's what Paul goes on to talk about later in the chapter. He says, God's salvation is by grace through faith. Look down in chapter, uh, chapter nine, 10, verse 9, uh, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness. So you get the pure righteousness from God by believing in your heart. And with the mouth confession is made unto salvation so that others know that. I don't think it means as an outward confession in order to get saved. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. The person who reaches out and cries out to God, I'm a sinner and I, I need to be saved and I trust your son and what he's done on the cross. That's calling out. That's an exercise of faith. So you depend upon the Lord. So what are you depending upon this morning to take away your sin? Everybody's depending upon something when they die. Everybody. Even atheists are depending upon something. They're depending upon there's nothing else coming. I mean, you think about what Christians have in purpose and meaning. You know, a Hindu, knock on your door. You know, if you know you die today, you'd be absorbed in the cosmos and lose your personal identity? Is that satisfying? An atheist, knock on your door. If you know you die today, that's it? That's it? No. What do we say? You know, if you die tonight, you'd be with the Lord forever in a beautiful place. You know, we have a lot going for us that we sometimes don't use enough of. 
But <clears throat> it's clear here, and you can come down to chapter 11, verse 6. It says, and if by grace, then it is no longer of works. You know, salvation is by grace. It's no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But if it is of works, it's no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. Paul's saying, you can't have salvation by works because it's by grace through faith. That's his point throughout the three chapters. And the Jews had missed that. And that's a problem. And so, as we look at the prospect for Israel now in the future, because you, th you think about Israel today, the nation, the vast majority of the Jewish people in Israel are atheists, or at best agnostic. Only about 20% are orthodox, rabbinical Judaism folks. The Holocaust has made a lot of Jewish people atheists. And we can understand humanly why that's so. But Israel is not cast away forever, that first point there on the left-hand side. Look in chapter 11, the first two verses. I say then, as God, has God cast away his people? Certainly not. And then he goes on to say, I'm not cast away, I'm an Israelite and I'm saved. You know, in verse 2, God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. The chosen idea is there as well. And then he gives some illustrations for that. Then you come down to verse 7 and 8. The second point is that Israel is temporarily blinded. What then? Uh, Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect, that is the Jewish remnant who has trusted the Lord, have obtained it, and the rest were blinded. Just as it is written, God has given them a spirit of stupor, eyes that they should not see and ears that they should not hear to this very day. And that's sad when it comes to the idea that God hardens the hearts of people. And Israel has been cast aside, some call it judicial blindness. And but it's temporary. It's absolutely temporary. Come down to verse 25. Our third point there. I say then, uh, let's see. For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part, the point there is only some, there's some Jews who come to Jesus, others blindness in part, has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So it's temporary. Again, same point from before, but then notice. And so all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins that's the new covenant being fulfilled for the nation of Israel at the second coming of Jesus. That's when all Israel will be saved. Zechariah tells us they'll see him whom they mourned, that they, they pierced and they'll mourn. Zechariah 12, 13, and 14, beautiful section in the prophets. The nation of Israel comes to their Messiah at the end. There is a very wicked view that's out there that circulates among Jewish people 
Uh, one uh, scholar I talked to, a uh, Christian scholar, thinks that it originated in, the, in the Islam to try to drive a wedge between evangelicals and the Jewish people. And uh, the wicked teaching is this. They, they say, you guys believe that you want all the Jews to go back to Israel so that when Jesus comes back, he can kill them all. That's not what we believe. We believe that when Jesus comes back, they turn to him. They receive their Messiah. Read Zechariah 14. It's clear as everything. All the passages, all the points ahead. The nation comes to God. And then notice this, verse 28, concerning the gospel, that is, today they are enemies for your sake because they reject the gospel. But concerning the election, the choice of God, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. Notice how he says that, for the sake of the fathers. I'm going to keep my promise that I made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then it says, one of my favorite verses in the Bible Verse 29, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. God's not going to give it back. He's not going to change. And so the Jews, the nation, has a grand and glorious future. Ezekiel 37 says this, Surely I will take the children of Israel from among the nations, wherever they have gone, and will gather them from every side and bring them into their own land. And I will make them one nation in the land, but I will deliver them from all their dwelling places in which they have sinned and will cleanse them. So what? That God predicts they're coming back to the land and I'm going to have their glorious kingdom when Messiah comes. They're going to accept him. It's a great future. But what about our response to that? We need to love what God loves. Have his heart for Israel like he has a heart for Israel. Jeremiah 31, 3, I have loved you, he says to Israel, with an everlasting love. And everlasting means what? Means forever, forever means what? This never, God's love for Israel never stops. And you and I should have a love for Israel that never, ever stops. We should never accept the pro-Hamas rallies. We want to destroy the Jewish people from the river to the sea. That's genocide. Wipe them out. We should never want that. Ever. No room for anti-Semitism in the church. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Let's love what God loves. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your written word. We ask you, Lord, to help us respond appropriately to it. And I pray uh, that you help us to love the Jewish people. And, and uh, even when we have maybe Jewish uh, acquaintances that might not be lovable as people, just like other people are not lovable. I pray, Lord, you'd help us to overcome the human interaction issues and still love them for the Father's sake like you have loved them with an everlasting love. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.